Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and a columnist for the New Daily. And I'm Stephen Mayne, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. And I should have mentioned Eureka Report is now part of Intelligent Investor, so that's the sponsor of this podcast. And your employer. And my employer. Owned by public company Investsmart, one of the few companies that's yet to be taken over, Alan, with all these takeovers that are happening There are a few takeovers. Yeah, well, there are a few going on, aren't there? Well, you see CSR overnight. The French are coming. The French have offered six bucks a share for CSR. And what sort of premium is that? Oh, you know? it was, well, the stock it was a bit embarrassing, actually. The stock jumped 17% yesterday and then got suspended. And they still hadn't announced. I didn't so, notice so that. It leaked. I didn't notice it that. It leaked. Somebody yes. leaked it. Yeah. So, uh, and then overnight, the news reports were uh, French building materials company um, offering uh, Saint Gobain. They're called offering nine bucks a share, worth three point four billion. They've secured uh, due diligence, and the stock was up seventeen percent uh, yesterday before the leak. So, this is. I'm really getting worried. CSR was established in 1855. So, as the, as the colonial sugar refinery company. It is one of the great Australian household names. Yeah, but it's not, not a sugar company anymore. Well, I know. It's a building materials, aluminium and stuff, but it's going. Borrell's going. Yesterday, I went to the farewell shareholder meeting for Boat Longyear, which has been a dog that's ripped $4 billion off investors, but they got taken over as well. Good riddance to them. Good riddance. But, Alan, there's been 45 takeovers in the last five years and there's already 11 this year and we haven't even hit the end of February. Yeah, but how many IPOs have there been? Bugger all. That's the problem. Is the IPO market is shut. Every sing- for, for 12 months in a row, there's been more delistings than listings and we're down 107 stocks in 12 months net. So I, I think this is a real issue and uh, we've got a question today about Altium, which is one of our great tech success stories. They've just been offered nine billion cash by a Japanese chip maker, Renesis. I mean, that's a great success story. Sure. But And they're all very the happy. ASX, yeah, that's right. If you're getting $68.50 a share when the thing uh, was once down at eight cents. So, you know, barely anyone's heard of Altium, which is this wonderful uh, software maker for electronic uh, circuit boards. So it's a great wealth creator, but we don't have many tech stocks and now we're going to have one less for the mum and dad punters to buy. Um, what do you think of Brad Banducci's, um, in quotes, retirement? Well, in my last Intelligent Investor column, I did pose the question, is it time for Brad Banducci to go? So I'm not going to say, I picked this, Alan, but look, it's eight and a half years. He's always had a glass jaw. He's always been thin-skinned. He was going anyway, but embarrassing the way he walked out on Four Corners. You were, I loved your quip on the ABC last night about the Four Corners shares would have gone up yesterday if, if they were listed. <laughs> I'm going to ask you, have you ever had anyone walk out on a television interview with you? No, no, but I'm a pussycat. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, look, and, and it's interesting to, to reflect on why he walked out because he said, uh, you know, when, when, uh, when Angus Grid brought up Rod Sims, Brad says, oh, he's retired, retired, yeah. you know, yeah. as if that's bad, you know, in some way. And, um, and then he tried to take it back. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then he said, oh, you cut that out, won't you? And Angus said, 
Angus said, no, 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 you're on the record, mate. You know, come on. And, uh, and then he says, oh, well, I'm off then. Really. Well, I'm, I'm a little bit sympathetic to the Banducci view. I mean, whenever a journo rings me up and says, you want to talk about this? You know, someone's doing a Tom Elliott cover story on Good Weekend. So the journo rings me up and I said, mate, can we just talk? And then we'll agree some quotes later. So then I give this sort of honest assessment and then the quotes go back and forth. So... I know it's different rules with four corners. No, but, and, no, but it's know. not that. The fact is the, fa- the camera was rolling. Yeah, I know. Right, I know. So the, the, you know, your camera's yeah. rolling, you're on the record, that's yeah. it. Yeah, but normally if you say but, look, uh, but if, also if it's a pre-record, it's not a live interview, it's pre-record, oh, look, I've just stuffed it up, can I do that again? And you, are you going to really show that? You know, like sometimes... Well, no, but, but the thing is that it's calling, saying that Rod Sims is retired is both... True and not that damning. It's it's okay, yeah. big deal. Yeah. You know, right. so he's 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 overreacted entirely. Yeah, you know, it was just a a big stuff up. Oh, it was by a, Brad. Look, 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 I agree. I agree. It was a stuff up, and and look, I'm glad he's gone. He he'd been there too long. But I do think it's interesting that all these female CEOs are being appointed to take over these these major companies. Uh, I mean. Uh, yeah, but they're, they're, when they're in trouble, right? Yeah, well, correct. Like, so so uh, they get uh, chucked in the deep end. Correct. So Telstra has gone for Vicky Brady. Helen Lofthouse has taken over as the CEO at ASX. Vanessa Hudson at Qantas. Michelle Jabalco at Transurban. Uh, Leah Wackett at Coles. Um, and so it's 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 like those all those female premiers back in the day, like Joan Kerner, Carmen Lawrence, Christine Keneally, Anna Bly, Lara Giddings, Jacinta Allen even at, at the moment. When the blokes stuff up, the women finally get a go. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Yeah. So, so when the blokes stuff up, the women get a go. Yeah, that's right. So Brad Banducci <laughs> stuffed up, and now Amanda Bardwell is the endorsed new CEO of Woolworths starting in September. I do like it that they've never had an external CEO. Woolies. They're like, they're like West Farmers. They apparently uh, and the, the chairman Scott Perkins says that um, they did an international search. So some. <laughs> some recruitment And hire company. the woman in the office next door. Yeah, yeah so right. Egon Zender or someone has got paid an absolute fortune to do an international search yeah. and hire the woman down the corridor. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's off on the way. I think it's also interesting how open Australia is to foreigners running our company. So John Mullen is a POM and he's been the new chair oh, of yeah, Qantas. He's an honorary Aussie. Honorary Aussie, yeah, on. but he's a POM. I mean, Jane Hardlick has just taken the, just walked the plank at Virgin. You know, she's an American. Um, and then Brad Banducci, we let this South African run Woolworths for eight years. So Meyer is currently run by a POM, John King, Alan Joyce, the Irishman. What, are you a... Are you a xenophobe? I'm you? saying it's wonderful that this great multicultural success story that is Australia is doesn't have a cultural cringe about making it foreigners chairs Correct. and CEOs, which I think exactly. is a great thing about Australia as a welcoming country. Yes. Now, speaking of Qantas, we should do the result that's just out this morning. 873 million net profit for the half. Is that good or bad? That's great. It's, it's only down 13% or something, so that's a lot of money. Um, and no dividend, but a $400 million extension of the buyback. And why is that, Alan? Why would Qantas be doing dividends, no dividends and buybacks? It's because they don't have any franking credits. And so rather than pay an unfranked dividend, it makes more sense to prop your share price up and do a buyback. We have a question about this, why companies do buybacks rather than dividends. And obviously the lack of franking credits is one reason. That's right. The other reason I would submit, Your Honour, 
is that um, uh, is that buybacks benefit the executives more than dividends do because they make the shares go up and executives benefit from shares going up. Well, yes, that's where a good board aware that there's a total shareholder return so metric in an, in an LTI grant will make sure that the executive is not gaming the share price by buying the stock up with the company's own money just before a vesting event for a share. So where is this CEO. mythical good board, do you reckon? Come on, Alan. You're sounding like a green left weekly uh, editor or something. There's lots of... What are you saying? There's no good boards out there? No, there's no, come not. on. Come on. <laughs> All right. Well, we should, but probably should do no, it. No, but, but boards do tend to be dominated by CEOs. If CEO says we should do a buyback, probably they're going to do it. Look, yeah. I agree that CEOs have too much power and we need more strong boards to stand up to the likes of Alan Joyce when they go crazy and suggest, you know, helping themselves to frozen hundreds of millions of frozen COVID flight bookings and stuff like that. Uh, now, we've got tons of good questions, so before we go to them, um, a word from our sponsor. The Intelligent Investor Select Value Share Fund is a unique mix of global leaders and homegrown small caps poised for long-term growth. Designed for investors seeking international diversification and Australian companies with superior financial metrics. Invest today at intelligentinvestor.com.au. Okay, first question is from Ian. Any chance a super fund or Insta investor will block the Altium takeover? My wife put $5,500 in at $7.80. She has received $1,200 in dividends, taken out 9500 in profits, and will get 30000 in the takeover. Well, congratulations, Ian's wife. Talk well about done. looking a gift horse in the mouth. Ian, it's been a great investment. And he's whinging. This is like he someone, wants it blocked. This is like someone saying, I hate the fact I've got to pay a lot of capital gains tax. I mean, it's great to pay a huge amount of capital gains tax because you've just made a huge capital gain. That's a good thing. So the Altium so, takeover, not since Japan Post, massively overpaid for toll. Have we seen a crazy bid from a Japanese predator like this one for Altium? It's a $68.50 a share. So, as we said earlier, it's, it's great. Ian, no one's going to block it. It's a blockbuster bid. It's just tied in with AI, you know, as well, because it's a, it's a chip maker buying a software maker for electronic circuit boards. So this is Australia cashing in on AI in quite sure. a major way. Yeah, but we're losing our, one, of, one of our only very few AI companies. You know, yeah. Anyway, but look for nine billion, nine billion cash. I'm happy to give it up. I mean, like you know, it's a it's an it's amazing yours. price. So well done to all involved. Um, from Sam Weiss, the chair down. It's just a great success story. So Gordon says, I've just finished Alan's housing essay, and I wonder if Alan has done or witnessed any analysis on the historical increase in the participation of women in the workforce, and whether that has any correlation to house prices increasing, specifically. If the income to price ratio has gone from three to four times to seven to eight times, is that not because the old system was on one income and now many houses are occupied by a couple with two incomes and shouldn't the couple be treated as a purchasing entity? In other words, couples can afford to pay more because there's two yeah. of them, not one of them. I, I think that the uh, greater participation of women in the workforce is a, a very important factor in house prices rising. Uh, because it's enabled uh, families to uh, take on larger mortgages, that's for sure. Uh, but it should be pointed out that the multiple of seven to eight times, up from three to four times, is based on household income 
I, I worked that out. Oh, it is household income. It's household income. Oh, Seven or eight okay. times household income. And, and, uh, and I worked that out by looking at um, one person on uh, working full-time on average weekly earnings uh, and another partner work, uh, working three days a week on average weekly earnings. So that's what that is. If it was based on a single income, which is what the three to four times in the past is based on, if we kept it on single income, it would be 10 to 12 times. Oh, wow. Okay. So actually looking at single incomes, the increase in house price to income ratio was much greater than that. And I actually, after finishing the essay, I went back and thought, oh, geez, I did myself out of some something sensational. I could have made it look far worse <laughs> if, I'd, if I'd gone with single income. Anyway. Oh, well. Too late now. It's printed. It's out it's there. Done. It's a great essay. You should buy it. Now, we've got 18 questions to get through, so we'll race through this one. Dave has just asked the why do companies do buyback questions, which yeah, well, we, we mentioned have. earlier, but I will just add that other companies that do buybacks that don't pay frank dividends are News Corp, Macquarie, Qantas, and CSL. They're probably the four major ones that really <laughs> focus on that. Uh, Ryan Stokes says... No, no uh, Ryan brackets not Stokes. Oh, right. It's not Ryan Stokes. <laughs> it's not Ryan Stokes. I thought Ryan Stokes was a listener. There you go. Keen to get your thoughts and comments on seven groups bid for the remaining 28% of Boral and the implications for current shareholders, the business and its operations, and the ASX. And uh, this is now an opportunity for Stephen to have another rant about losing companies. Go. Boral was founded in 1946, one of the historic, historical great companies and it is... Did it start off making asphalt? Was that its beginning? Yeah, yeah, beginning? it was, it was o oil refining, yeah, asphalt and bitumen and a big plant in uh, Matraville in Sydney was what it started off. And then it got massively diversified, it got into coal mining and... Concrete. Concrete, and now it's 50% of the concrete market. So if you're talking about cost of living increases, the way Borrell is using its 50% market share in concrete to push through double-digit increases in the price of concrete, which is... You know, every footpath we construct in Manningham, we had two borrowable trucks coming down our street this week with footpath construction. I was thinking, thanks for the 10% increase in the concrete prices. You should have so, bloody gone for Presto or something. Yeah. Is well, it Presto? I don't no, know. No, uh, that's the Adelaide Brighton. Um, yeah, one of, the, one of the few competitors left. But uh, look, um, Borrell is being taken over. They're largely offering seven group shares. And seven group shares have gone for an almighty run to $40. So the company's now worth like $14 billion and the Stokes stake is worth $7 billion. So Seven Group, thanks to um, Coates Hire, thanks to Westrack and thanks to its controlling stake in Borrell, is absolutely booming. And so Stokes is taking advantage of that very high share price to offer those shares to take out Borrell. And I'm just sad to see Borrell disappear as a public company, although the shareholders, the 50,000 retail shareholders can roll into Seven Group because it's largely a script offer. But I think Seven Group needs to be renamed. It's got nothing to do with Channel 7. It's, Channel 7 is now like 1% of its value. It should be called Stokes Group or call it Borrell Coates Group. But don't lose the Borrell name, which is one of the great corporate names about to be taken out. Um, your turn. Now, Richard says, a question on the current $315 million raising by BCI Minerals at 25 cents. So Richard points out that the offer closes on February 26 and the stock is currently trading at 23 to 24 cents. So Richard's simply saying, you know, should we take up the shares 
am I missing something? If the offer's at 25 cents, should I buy the shares at 23, 24 cents? Now, Alan, I've got a pretty firm rule here, is you wait until the last day of an offer, and if it's in the money, you take it up. If it's not in the money, you don't. Simple as that, because if you can buy them cheaper on the market, why would you buy them off the company direct? There you go. There's your answer, Richard. I couldn't agree more. But it's a straightforward, it's a straightforward uh, price equation. You know, there's no reason to pay more to the company for the stock that you can buy in the market but for just, less. But just speaking of Kerry Stokes and how he dominates, he's sort of the Russian oligarch of uh, WA. He is putting $100 million into that $315 million raising. So Kerry Stokes personally, not through Seven Group or Seven West or anything else he's in or Borrell, he is personally writing out a cheque of $100 million to retain his 39% stake in the company, and they are planning to build a $1.5 billion salt and potash operation on the Pilbara coast south of Caratha. So this bloke who supplies all the big Caterpillar trucks to all the mining operations, he often just splashes a lazy $100 million here and there on individual projects, which well, is I what he's doing there. After what happened with Seven Group, I reckon if Kerry Stokes is putting $100 million into this company is probably not a bad well, buy at 23 cents. I, that, that is very true. Follow the billionaire money is yes. also a very smart way to invest because he's underwriting this thing. But, yeah. um, but I don't know, construction blowouts. I mean, sometimes I worry about a single project. You know, the risk in a single project there's no, thing is, There's is no big. end to the demand for salt and potash, I'd suggest. Yes. Well, it's a great sustainability play as well. So, you know, at least he's moving on from iron ore and coal mining. So this is one of the great renewable oh, sustainable he's giving plays. Us, he's going to give us all high blood pressure. Well, too much salt. Mm. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, thanks for nothing, Kerry. Michael says, great show, not seeking advice, just commentary. I've been looking at three to four-year <laughs> fixed-term accounts for major banks and none of them offer any more than their standard savings account, which pays monthly. My question is, are fixed-term products dying off because of ETFs? Why can't I get a premium of 2 to 3% for locking up money for multiple years? What's the answer, Stephen? Come on, Michael. Everyone is tipping that interest rates are going to fall. Maybe one cut, two cut, three cut, whatever it is. So when everyone's predicting that, the banks are not going to offer you a 2% premium of 6% for three or four years. They're not stupid, Michael. So the banks, you know, Commonwealth Bank's worth $195 billion. It's ridiculous. The big four are worth $464 billion. This is because they're not stupid. And they won't offer you a four-year fixed-term rate at an uneconomic level when everyone's saying interest rates are going to fall. Sylvain says, do fund managers have to disclose the calculation of the performance fees they charge? And the answer is they're supposed to, but you have to be a mathematical genius in order to work it out. <laughs> That's right. And quite often it'll be, you know, Macquarie used to be the masters of this. They'll, be, they'll take some $40 million performance fee out of their airport fund or their Macquarie infrastructure group and they'll go, oh, it's all fully disclosed in the, in the prospectus eight years ago. The, th- the thing I'd suggest, Sylvain, is to, w- with the performance fees, you've got to look at what the percentage of the po- performance fee is. But the most important thing is what's the hurdle that they have to pass? Because some, uh, well, how can I put it, shysters have their performance fee at zero. Like, yes. they get a performance fee for any performance. We'll get 15% of any performance, yeah, which right. is ridiculous. So it needs to be an outperformance of fee. Some, against, and what is it an outperformance against? Is yes. it against the RBA cash rate or is it, as it should be, against the rest of the market? Yeah. And in the broader public company space when it comes to CEO bonuses, when they have something called uh, relative TSR, relative total share price performance, in a crash you can get a bonus 
paid to a CEO because their shares only fell by 20% when everyone else fell by 40%. So there yep. always needs to be a clause in there which says, and the shareholders have to may, have to have made more than 10% that year. You yep. can't just be getting a bonus because you'd lost less money than your competitor. Your now, turn. Alex says, love your show, but you've got this whole AI thing wrong. We need to stop thinking about AI as replacing jobs. It's about doing more with the workforce you have. It's a multiplier. The history of the last few hundred years has always been about doing more. We have robots in manufacturing already, introducing scale and precision. And then Sally, and I'm asking if this is Sally McManus, but I don't know. Sally says, quote, I wanted to mention that while I did find Alan's AI slavery discussion fun, Alan would benefit from reading up on modern slavery to be better briefed about how not over slavery sadly is. So Sally is telling you that don't joke about slavery. Modern slavery is a big bad thing which is still going on. And our other questioner is saying, it's a beat up, it's talking about slavery, AI is a great thing and uh, relax mate, embrace it, it's great for everyone. Yeah, well, okay, firstly, okay, I stand corrected, Sally. Uh, yes, modern slavery is a thing, I get it. Uh, you know, okay. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that. But Alex, uh, uh, dream on, mate, I'd say. If you reckon that AI is not going to replace jobs, dream on. <laughs> I'm a bit more with Alex that we should lean in and embrace it. But gee, there's some spooky uses of it. Like just this week, a whole bunch of parents whose kids were killed by gun massacres at schools authorised the use of AI to have their kids' voices used to plead to politicians to change gun laws. It was pretty creepy to have dead children's running arguments about these laws should be changed because I'd be alive, you know. And But it was like you've got to freak out the gunsters because you've got to play how they play. And so the politicians won't fix it. Let's use AI to pressure them. But, boy, just scary how it can be used. I heard you recently... Paul, Paul says, um, I heard you recently supporting Felsey and his suspicions that Woolies and Coles are ripping off Australia as a bloke out in the burbs, a regular shopper at Woolies and perhaps someone more interested in evidence than mistrust. I just don't get that. I love the value I get at Woolies. Fruit is cheaper than fruit shops. Meat is cheaper and fresher than butchers. Batteries are cheaper than Bunnings. I could go on. I haven't even mentioned the half-price specials on everything from tuna to shower gel. As shoppers, we have the option of Costco, Aldi, IGA. Now they are pricey. And Amazon Prime, what a service. And it seems hard to argue that the big supermarkets have control as things stand. Yet Aussies are sure they must be doing a number on us. Why? Well, is that Paul Banducci, son of Brad, who's uh, written in that question? I don't know. But, um, look, Woolworth shares fell 6% yesterday to a 12-month low. So they're only worth $44 billion. Coles is worth $21.5. So together they're worth $65 billion. Compare that with the big four banks, which are today worth $474 billion. So I actually think the bigger rip-off, from an oligopoly point of view, is our banks than the supermarkets, but our supermarkets are powerful, they probably have been gouging, but boy, are they copying it at the moment, and um, I think they probably should have cut their prices a bit more to anticipate the backlash in a cost of living crisis. Well, Paul, the basis of the accusations, one of the basis of the accusations against the, the supermarkets is that their margins are higher than anyone else, any other supermarket country uh, in the world, and they have, the two of them have the largest 
uh, market share of any of the top supermarkets elsewhere. Yeah. So not only is there less competition in Australia, their margins are higher. You um, know the other measure of their power? I remember for a while, for a while there, Woolworths had negative net stock. In other words, they were a virtual supermarket because they would force their payment terms for their suppliers out to 90 days or whatever. So that is another example of abuse of market power, forcing farmers and small suppliers to wait 90 days to get paid. And a good mate of mine used to be in the fast-moving consumer goods, and I used to say to him, how do they rip you off? What do they do? And he said, what happens is you get to late on a Friday afternoon and you might have 100 products with them and you'll get this email saying, delete, 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 and they just cancel 10 of your products for the next selling period. And that is their market power. The ability just to say to a supplier, no, we're not taking that product. And this is a national, nationwide ban and payment term. So I do believe they've ripped people off over the years, but I think they're behaving better now. And I, and I wouldn't want to be the new CEO of Coles or Woolies because uh, you're in the gun for, for what a lot of the past practices where I think the abuse of market power was pretty substantial. Do you think, do you think that it might change now that... Uh Two women are in charge of Coles and Woolies? Well, I think this is partly... Do you think that uh, the women are likely to behave differently to men? Yeah, I think you're less likely to be a short-term brutalist, i.e. make as much money as you can but damage your brand, damage your franchise, damage your social licence by ripping people off too much. So I do think they have to pull back. But possession is nine-tenths of the law in, in business. Coles and Woolies have control of all these supermarkets all over Australia. They're not licensed by the government. So there's not a lot the government can actually do to force them to change their prices and sell off supermarkets. So they're in a very powerful entrenched position and uh, it's quite hard to bring them to heel. And Mike says, I love your podcast. My wife and I were dumbfounded when our daughter who works in a bar in Brisbane owned by Australian venue company uh, our daughter told us that when patrons leave a tip at the bottom of the EFTPOS bill, the venues do not pass this on to the staff and have the right to retain that tip as additional profit for the venue. Now, I would be surprised if that was the case as well. If you actually say tip, I would have thought the law would say that must go to the staff or the enterprise agreement negotiated by maybe the unions maybe it's not mentioned. That. Maybe it's not in the law at all. And maybe yeah. the, the venue can do what it likes. I mean, I, I, that's very uh, it's interesting. disturbing yeah. if it's true. It is. Now, AVC is owned by KKR, a ruthless New York-based famous private equity firm. So if anyone is capable of doing that, it would be a ruthless global private equity firm. So maybe the best way to get around this is if you're in an AVC venue... Pay cash directly to the your favourite uh, bar staffer, but nobody's nobody's got any cash anymore. Yeah, I know. So um, yeah, I, that wouldn't happen at restaurants. If you if you do a tip at a restaurant, that would surely that would have to go to the wait staff. But the interesting point. Alex says I blame baby boomers for everything, but but also understand want to understand why taxes on income are being prioritised over taxes on wealth. Well, it's because. Uh, wealthy people run the country, <laughs> I would and they say don't want taxes on their wealth. I would say if that you don't mind. income tax is a very easy tax to apply, particularly when the employer deducts it directly out of your pay packet before you even get it. So that's it's just quite easy to do. And once someone has got wealth, 
often they've already paid tax on that wealth and then it's very difficult to take someone's wealth off them. And I think the most obvious wealth tax we should Come have on, but Stephen, don't have you, is death duties. We you, need death duties on the wealthy. You we think, need that. You think as, as, as much as I do that uh, part of the reason wealth people, wealthy people get wealthy is because they don't pay tax. Come on, the idea that the, these wealthy people have paid tax along the way is, yeah. well, and, is and, and, uh, and how can I put it? Yeah, well, a lot of that wealth, like people like Rupert Murdoch and Kerry Stokes hate paying tax. I remember Rupert Murdoch once said at an AGM when talking about John Malone and I asked some question and Rupert said, John Malone hates paying tax. So that's why he was explaining why every deal with John Malone was always a script rollover deal because whenever you sell something for cash, you pay tax. But if you sell something for shares, you get rollover relief on capital gains. So. Many of the wealthiest people have unrealised capital gains because the shares have gone up Twiggy Forest at Fortescue and when Twiggy dies, those shares will pass to his beneficiaries tax-free because we don't have... Inheritance tax. Inheritance tax. So exactly. that, that is the rule. And, and James Thompson was actually wrong last week on the Money Cafe. When someone dies, the share price on the date of death is deemed to be the purchase price to the person inheriting those shares. And I learnt this when my dad passed away at 95 a year ago. And so the shares that went to my mum, we had to record the, the share price on the day of death. And so he got a... So the Woolies shares went to my mum. No capital gains tax. Yeah. Straight over to mum. Mum can sell them now and not pay any capital gains tax because his death eliminated the capital gain, effectively. That's Limit, a rort. Eliminated him too. Well, Tragically, yes, correct. Now, Tim is saying, is in... Are we doing, Nathan? Oh, okay, go back to Nathan Nathan, I bought a one-bedroom unit. Oh, no, it's your turn. Yeah, well, Nathan bought a one-bedroom unit in Melbourne last year and he's just looking for some property advice as to whether his one-bedroom unit in Melbourne is going to go up or down. And he's a bit worried about what happens if we change negative gearing. And if we change negative gearing, Nathan, I think there's a fair chance it'll go down because it's artificially inflating uh, property prices. Correct. Marty says, I noticed that the Intelligent Investor ETF IISV is offering a secondary issue of units. Is there any benefit to participating in the offer rather than buying the shares on the market? That's for you, the company man, Alan. Well, what do you yes, reckon? except that it's basically what we were talking about before with uh, offers from, you know, buying company shares from a company then as, instead of on the market, right? You just, take, you just go to the last minute and you take the cheapest price. Yeah, but the point is is that the vast majority of secondary office offers are in the money, so they're offered at a discount, and yeah. therefore you, you should take it up because if you don't take it up, you get diluted without compensation. Yeah. And that gets to the whole issue about the structure of capital raisings and why it's important, ideally, for capital raisings to be renounceable and to compensate the non-participants. So I understand this offer by Intelligent Investor of IOSV is going very well. <laughs> Everyone's jumping in. <laughs> so get in fast. <laughs> You'll get a bonus. Tim says, is inflation in any way good for stock prices? If my favourite coffee is more expensive due to inflation, could my favourite share be similarly impacted? Now, can inflation be good for anyone? I mean, inflation has been good for Borrell because they've been able to justify jacking up the price of concrete by double digits and the share price has gone through the roof as a result of it. So anyone who has market power to jack up their prices and can blame inflation, that can be good for them. But overall, isn't it just bad for everyone? Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's, not, it's not so bad for people who've got a lot of debt. Yeah, inflate your way out of debt. 
Correct. Yeah, correct. And there's also this consumer inflation and there's asset price inflation. Asset price inflation makes people with assets wealthier. So, so ho- homeowners love asset price inflation because all of a sudden you're worth a lot more. Uh, We've done pretty well. We've got through 15. Let's do another couple and then we're done. Love your work, says Peter. But I must correct you on your comment on your most recent Money Cafe about AFIC trading at a massive 17% premium to NTA. It's actually at a 3% discount, he says. So, look, I got that off my iris screen. So, sorry about that. I did say that it was 17% uh, premium because that's what it said on iris. So, I don't know. Yeah, it gets confusing as to whether it's tax-paid... Uh, NTA or not tax paid NTA. Yeah, well, so there's a yeah, that's right. So yeah. there was a big difference between tax paid and tax not yeah, paid. Yeah, because if you liquidated the whole portfolio, you're not going to get all that cash given back to you because you've got to pay all the capital gains tax. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a bit of a, a tricky one. Um, now Ali says that uh, you had a thought provoking article in the New Daily this week. Wouldn't the carbon solutions levy get passed straight onto household bills, making it in- unpopular with voters? Why not tax the stuff as it comes out of the ground, Alan? As this mostly goes overseas, so they pay more to export. So you wrote the column, Alan. Carbon solutions levy. Well, it's, does uh, it make the, any sense? The, the proposition is to put a ninety dollar a ton. Uh, carbon tax effectively on fossil fuels. Why not? Uh, and all fossil fuels, most of which are exported. So it goes on the uh, household bills of foreigners. I mean, yes, some comes to Australia as well, of course, but not that much. And uh, the point that Rod Sims and um, Ross Garner were making about it was that you raise so much money from this uh, that you'd not only be able to pay for the infrastructure required for becoming a renewable energy superpower, you could compensate people pretty much fully for the cost because the the amount that goes on the household bills is not that great. But would the Queensland government still be able to have the highest coal royalties in the world ripping $10 billion a year out of the coal miners if the, gov- the feds come over the top with this extra Ross and coal Rod, tax? Ross and Rod say you could, you could offset those. Pay the, you could pay the money to or the same amount of money to the State governments, yeah. Uh, also, out of the same, the same tax. So look, that's what they say. I haven't done the sums, but that's, they did the sums. Now Sam basically said, "This was quite funny." Last he question. Said, yes, last question from Sam. He basically said, "Come on, just because one person goes to Hong Kong and comes back with an anecdote saying China's booming, you can't just make a whole assessment of the Chinese economy about someone seeing a busy airport." And he's basically saying, "Has China really slowed?" What is the real situation in China based on the data, not some anecdote? Well, the problem with that is uh, that the data is, uh, I would suggest, cooked up. I mean, (laughs) they... uh, Watch uh, out, Alan. You get locked up, sent to the gulag, accusing the Chinese communists of cooking up stats. Come and get me. I'd be a... (laughs) Come and get me, says Navalny. (laughs) No, but the thing is, we take, in Australia, just as an example, right, in Australia we take the, uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics takes two months to figure out our GDP after the end of each quarter. Uh, in China, they take two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks to figure out that the GDP of a country with 1.4 billion people in it, I, I reckon what they do is they start with the answer and they work backwards. Yeah. Well, I, I basically agree with the view that the ch- stupid Chinese carry-on during COVID and with all their geopolitical rubbish has seriously hurt their economy because they've spooked the West 
and jumping into bed with Putin was a disaster and the Chinese need to declare that Putin is a disgrace and join the West and help us contain Putin. That's what, that was, that's what needs to happen. And then we can all happily trade that with China the, again. That is the... Ridiculous. Considered view of... A madman. A, a, a famed uh, foreign affairs commentator, Stephen May. <laughs> Go back to council, yes. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Money Cafe. I'll be back next week with James Thompson. Send in your questions to the Money Cafe at eurekareport.com.au. Uh, until then, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, which is owned by Intelligent Investor, etc. And I'm Stephen Mayne, and we'll see you in a fortnight. <laughs>